0: It's Monday, November 19th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Now, if any of you have been following the news, you probably know that Northern California in particular has been struck by major wildfires. Kishore and I are not in any kind of danger and certainly send out our best wishes to the families whose lives have been devastated by the enormous campfire up in Butte County. But we have been affected by the poor air quality in the city, which means that schools have been closed. And as you can imagine, it's getting more and more difficult to entertain small children indoors for days upon end. So this week, as we're coming up to Thanksgiving, we wanted to rerun a show that we really enjoyed last year, all about turkeys. Well, actually about dinosaurs. But I suppose since birds are the direct descendants, or some might even call still dinosaurs, it does apply, as we're about to be eating dinosaur, at least most of us, sometime this week. This is an interview with paleontologist Ken Lacovara, who unearthed one of the largest dinosaurs ever known, the Dreadnoughtus, who's at 65 tons larger than even the T-Rex. We hope you enjoy re-listening to this episode this Thanksgiving week, and we wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. And another reason why we're running this particular show this week is because next week we'll be airing a brand new interview also about dinosaurs with Steve Broussat, who's also a paleontologist involved in discovering 15 species of dinosaurs, and his book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaur, brings the dinosaurs back to life and back to relevance in today's modern age. So that'll be our interview for next week. We want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. If you're in the Bay Area, we hope that you are avoiding any of the worst of the air quality. If you're in Butte County, our hearts go out to you. And for the rest of you, we wish you a very happy week and we'll see you next week. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that includes everything you need to easily cook delicious meals that you can feel good about. With meals ranging from paleo, vegan, and vegetarian to keto, gluten-free, omnivore, and carnivore, it's easy to maintain a specialty diet and enjoy exciting new options, including a diverse array of recipes that range from global cuisines to classic comfort foods, all with a signature touch many of which include pre-made sauces, dressings, and spices, so you get more flavor in less time. Plus, each ingredient is thoughtfully sourced, and its journey from planting to plating is tracked closely. Because Green Chef thinks dinner should be planned around your life, not the other way around. Now, I'm a kind of person that doesn't like to cook or just just doesn't have that much time to cook. And recently, I used a Green Chef to prepare meatballs, one of my son's favorite dishes for him from scratch. And I have to say they were delicious. And they also made me feel like a boss. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash minds. That's greenchef.us slash M-I-N-D-S for $50 off your first box. Amy Arrett founded Madison Reed back in 2013, and she named it after her daughter. The company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. So for decades, women have had two options. You could go to the salon and spend a lot of money, or you would do it at home with some outdated hair color. But Amy created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. You'll look just like you came from a salon, but the reality is that you had more me time to do what you really love. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code (music) M-I-N-D-S. Kenneth Lacovara, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: So... I have a three year old. And of course, he's getting into his dinosaur phase. uh, And, you know, he's all excited about it. And I have to say that I've been learning much more about dinosaurs by taking him to the natural history museums and and so forth. But I still feel that I don't have a good understanding of how it is that we know what we know. You know, you go to these museums, and now you can see or you go online, you can find, you know, really uh, detailed depictions of dinosaurs. But how do we know? what they look like and, and sort of the, the, the intricacies of their bodies, if all we have are bones?
1: Well, some things uh, we don't know, but we're getting much, much better at um, knowing things that were previously unknowable to paleontologists. So um, oftentimes when a dinosaur skeleton is found, it's a partial skeleton. It's quite rare to find a complete skeleton of a dinosaur. So the first thing we do when we're trying to imagine what this ancient beast looks like is we um, we look for close relatives. Uh, and then if it's missing, say, part of its neck, um, we'll model the bones from the closest relative uh, we can find uh, for the parts that are missing. But now we're getting to the point where we're starting to study fossil animals more like a biologist would study animals that are alive today than like paleontologists previously studied dinosaurs and other extinct creatures. So we're at the point now where we're actually uh, reconstructing the muscles from the muscle scars that we see on the bone. Uh, some paleontologists are reconstructing the brains from the, um, from the cranial cavities that are preserved uh, in the skeleton. And we are even beginning to recover some ancient biomolecules from dinosaurs, such as uh, proteins and blood vessels and blood cells. And other paleontologists have now recovered the traces of pigment that existed in uh, ancient scales and in ancient feathers. So uh, some of it is still artistic license, but we really know a lot more now than we did, uh, you know, just a decade ago.
0: And I've also, through your book, learned that we're actually discovering more dinosaurs now and in the last few years than we have, you know, over the last few decades. That surprised me because I thought, like, well, we've probably discovered all the big fossils out there. Uh, Why is that not the case? Why, Why are we discovering more now?
1: Well, you know, there's more and more paleontologists in the world now. As world population grows, some percentage of those people turn out to be paleontologists. So there are more paleontologists in the world today and the world is more open today than it was just a few decades ago so now paleontologists can go to places like china and mongolia and other places that were really off limits before Um, and if you look at this statistically you can see that there's this exponential growth curve in the number of dinosaurs that are found every year and it shows no sign of stopping and in fact Uh, Some people have modeled this, and they don't think we're yet halfway through. So we have not yet hit uh, peak dinosaur, (laughs) if Hmm. you will. If you go back a century ago, paleontologists were finding about one dinosaur every year. And if you fast forward to the 1970s, it's about a half a dozen a year. This past year, in 2016, there were 36 new dinosaur species discovered. And this year, it's it's going to be, uh, you know, more than that, I think. It's, it's getting to be, it's almost once a week now.
0: Wow. And how different are these species than we would have expected? Are there some really big surprises or is it sort of like you're filling in the details of a, of a kind of rough drawing that you already have a sense of?
1: Well, it's both. And so as we discover more and more species, some of what we discover are related, uh, closely related to things that we already know about. And so we can see, you know, minor differences that make them cousins of each other. But in some cases, we get big surprises. And, you know, uh, nature really never fails to surprise us. And so we're just discovering, you know, dinosaurs that are bizarre in different ways with, you know outrageous plumage and sails and features, uh, you know, uh, that adapt them to environments where we didn't think dinosaurs, you know, were exploiting, and, uh, and giant dinosaurs. And, you know, we we keep pushing the boundaries of how big we think these animals could be. So, yeah, every year we get surprised uh, by what paleontologists are digging up.
0: And in fact, you're one of the discoverers of one of these massive dinosaurs. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: I am, sure. In, uh, in 2005, I found a giant dinosaur in southernmost Patagonia, down near Tierra del Fuego in Argentina. And I would later name this dinosaur Dreadnoughtus, meaning fears nothing, um, because this animal all fleshed out in life. This is a, think of a brontosaurus, long neck, long tail, quadrupedal, plant eater. This animal, all fleshed out in life, would have weighed 65 tons. That's the mass of about 13 bull African elephants or the mass of about nine T-Rex. That's actually about 10 tons heavier than a Boeing 737. It would have stretched 85 feet from its snout to its tail, and uh, it would have stood about two and a half stories at the shoulder. So this was essentially, you know, the size of a house. Um, it's just astounding that these creatures existed and were able to nourish their bodies and do all the other things that animals do.
0: So how did you find it?
1: Well, I was prospecting for dinosaurs in the bad lands of Patagonia, and I went down there uh, using the same formula that all paleontologists use. You have to find rocks of the right age, and then those rocks have to be sedimentary rocks so that a fossil can form. And then it's very helpful if today uh, you you have those rocks in a desert or in a badlands where you get good rates of erosion that are always pushing back the hillsides and exposing more and more bones every year. And then the fourth thing that I like to have is uh, I like to get as far away from other paleontologists as I can. And when you do that, you really increase your chance of finding something that is new to science. And so I had all four of those conditions when I got myself down on the ground there in 2005, and I walked, which is still the best way to prospect for fossils, and I saw a tiny patch of bone, no bigger than um, a small dinner plate, uh, sticking out of the desert floor, and I began to clean it off, and I could see that that there was a bone there. In fact, it was the femur, the largest bone in the body, the thigh bone. I wasn't too excited at that point because it's pretty common to find isolated bones of dinosaurs. But um, after about an hour of digging with my crew, we found the shin bone just after that. And then we found the fibula. And by the end of the first day, we had 10 bones exposed, which for these giants is already a really good result. And then uh, four expeditions later, four hard winters uh, spent there digging up this dinosaur, we ended up with... uh, 145 bones of this massive plant eater.
0: So this is going to sound like a really stupid question, but what would be the evolutionary benefit for a plant eater to be that big? I mean, I I imagine it's hard to get calories from plants. And if you're big, then, you know, you need to essentially spend your entire time eating. So like, how does that work?
1: That's right. And I think that's a great question, actually. And, you know, it's one that we're grappling with every day. Um... Part of it is there's an evolutionary arms race going on during the time of the dinosaurs. This is during the Cretaceous period, the last period of the age of the dinosaurs. And so we see predators getting bigger. We see herbivores getting bigger. But there's also tiny dinosaurs during all this time period. So that can't just be the answer. I think part of it is when you look at Cretaceous ecosystems, when you look at the animals, what you see are lots of small creatures and then some really, really big creatures. You don't see very many medium-sized creatures. And I think part of the answer is that the eggs of dinosaurs do not scale with adult body size. So you think of a dinosaur like my dinosaur Dreadnoughtus as being this huge titanic creature, but it was also a tiny creature. You could fit a dozen Dreadnoughtus on your desk when they're hatchlings. And so these tiny little cat-sized dinosaurs are doing tiny dinosaur things in the ecosystem. And then as they grow, they're doing the things that a herbivore the size of a sheep would do and a cow would do and an elephant and then a herd of elephants. So this one species during their during their growth history, they're able to occupy and exploit the resources from lots of different niches. So it's a really great way for one species to acquire a lot of resources and to essentially exclude other species from from acquiring the same.
0: Yeah, I imagine if you're as big as, you know, a house, you're going to need a a large area in which you can graze on to get enough plant fuel. So was there a kind of um, problem that these creatures were encountering in terms of eating too much of their own environment? Were they overpopulating? Well, we
1: don't know that yet. Um, most dinosaur species are known from partial skeletons. So that means we have a sample size of less than one for most dinosaur species. Um, so we don't really know a lot about their population dynamics within their ecosystems. But what we do know is that the Cretaceous is a really productive time in the history of life on Earth. Uh, temperatures are very high, CO2 levels are very high, plants love this. It leads to high productivity at the, at the base of the food chain. Now, just to be clear, we're entering into an era right now when temperatures are going up and CO2 is going up. It's a big problem because of the rate of change. You need millions of years for ecosystems to adapt to that kind of change. But the absolute numbers aren't really the problem. So if you go back to the Cretaceous, where these things, the ecosystems and the organisms evolved very slowly over many millions of years that high uh, level of CO2 and the high temperatures provide lots of plant food at the base of the ecosystem. So then you can take that energy and you can divide it into many smaller herbivores or fewer really big herbivores. And for some reason in the Cretaceous period, fewer big herbivores seems to be the answer that, um, that happened. You, you also see in these giant dinosaurs like Dreadnoughtus, you know, you don't get to be 65 tons unless you're a model of efficiency. And so these animals, they could stand in one place and with that long neck, they could clear out a huge feeding envelope of vegetation, taking in tens of thousands of calories while expending very few. And then they just take a couple steps to the side and then spend another couple hours doing that again. And then their body is like a giant heat radiator. So, you know, they're going to be warm. They're going to run a high body temperature just by virtue of their great mass. And then that long neck and long tail provide a huge amount of surface area to dump heat as well as they have bird-like lungs. So they have a, they have a one-way lung and then big air bladders in front and in back of that lung. And so there's a lot of exchange uh, between the heat inside their body and the air that's flowing through their body. So um, they don't spend calories heating their body. They have a very passive and efficient way of cooling their body. And they have a super efficient way of acquiring their food, which also includes they just gulp the food down whole whole, and they let the, uh, the acids and the bacteria in their stomach do the digestion for them. So models of efficiency.
0: Hmm. Do you know what the average lifespan might have been for a creature like that?
1: We don't know because these giant dinosaurs tend to remodel their bones a lot. Their their bones, particularly particularly their limbs, are under such stress that they get these little micro fractures in them all the time and, and the bone tissue regrows itself. So for some animals, like crocodiles, you'll see annual growth rings, like the, the growth rings in a tree and you can actually thin section the bone and just count them up and you can see how old these, these individuals are. You don't see that in these giant dinosaurs. But what we do know is that it doesn't make a lot of sense ecologically to grow a great huge body and then to live for only a few years. So, you know, it wouldn't make sense to grow to be 65 tons and then live to be, you know, 12 years uh, old. Um, And we see animals today that there's a correlation between body size and their longevity. So I wouldn't be surprised if these animals could live well past uh, 100. Um, And I would actually be surprised if they didn't live to be at least, you know, 75, 100 years old.
0: So if they're, you know, if they have sort of a lifespan that's at least comparable to humans, they have a lot of time to experience things. And is there any, you know, you know, one of my um, sort of big themes in terms of how the brain becomes what it is, uh, is because, you know, we have to experience things in order to shape the brain. Uh, That's how neuroplasticity works. So is there any evidence that there was a kind of like, did they, a kind of neuroplasticity in these animals that as they, you know, had these long lives, they were able to Learn more things or, or transmit things? Like, is there any evidence of any kind of culture or anything like that, that that we might see in these animals?
1: Well, it's probably the case that dinosaurs had complex behavior, and we do see some evidence of that in their trackways and some other, you know, hints, other clues that we get from the environment. But, um, you know, a giant animal like Dreadnoughtus, a 65 ton animal, it has a brain that is, um, you could fit two of them in in a pint glass. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I don't think they're thinking deep thoughts. Clearly, they would have been (laughs) capable of learning. That's why brains exist. But, um, uh, you know, I don't think there were wise old dreadnoughtists that were a whole lot (laughs) smarter than than younger ones. Um, They were eating machines, essentially. And I think a lot of what they did was uh, instinctual and you know, um, I think a lot of their behaviors were probably on autopilot.
0: So you know, even though we sort of have this a sense that there were a lot of dinosaurs during you know the height of the dinosaur age, we still kind of use the term "dinosaur" in a derogatory way, right? Like you certainly don't want to be called a dinosaur. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. So so tell us about you know why that's wrong. Why why should we should we not? You know why sh- why should we not want to be called, why should should we want I should say want to be called dinosaurs rather than the other way around?
1: well, and so you're right. You look up the the definition of dinosaur in any of the major English dictionaries, and you have the biological definition, that's always number one. And then number two is always something about obsolescence, failure to adapt, something like that. Well, dinosaurs were around the the non-bird dinosaurs. They were around for one hundred and sixty five million years. They were on every continent. They eventually came to dominate every terrestrial ecosystem. They fanned out across the globe. Um, you know, who wouldn't want success like a dinosaur? Global dominance for an Earth era, unbelievable adaptations, unbelievable resilience. Dinosaurs are enduring champions of an entire Earth age. And then if you include the birds, which are truly dinosaurs... Their reign across time extends for 231 million years, and today birds outnumber mammal species by three to one. So dinosaurs are still with us in that sense, and they're still incredibly successful. So in my book, to be called a dinosaur is an immense compliment.
0: (laughs) So what happened in terms of, you know, the the fifth extinction? I mean, we know there were at least from what I know, is that there was an asteroid that hit the Earth and caused a period of darkness that blocked out the sun, and you know animals died. Is that what 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 really happened?
1: Yeah, well, that, that's right. It's worse than that, though. <laughs> it's much worse. So, um, an asteroid going about forty five thousand miles an hour—that's about twenty five times the speed of a bullet—and um, an asteroid that's uh, six miles across uh, hits off the Yucatan Peninsula, what is now uh, Mexico, blows a, a hole in the ground that's about 125 miles across. And then all that rock, down to 20 miles deep, it's, it's thrown up through the atmosphere. So you can imagine how much that weighs. Imagine how much, you know, 100 plus miles of rock times 20 miles weighs, you've given that material this tremendous gravitational energy when you put it up through the atmosphere. When that stuff comes back in, it's got to balance the energy books. It does that mostly by heating up the atmosphere as it re-enters. So imagine you've probably all seen, um, you know, movies where you see a a space capsule coming in, like in the movie Apollo 13. And you can see it's a fireball as it's coming down because of the friction with the air. Well, imagine that day, trillions and trillions of tiny little sand-sized space capsules coming back into the atmosphere, all tiny little fireballs. Well, they heat up the atmosphere globally that day to the temperature of a toaster oven for a few hours, or some geophysicists would now say pizza oven for a few minutes. Either way, if you're on the surface of the earth that day and you don't have a place to shelter, if you don't have a place to hide, you die. You get cooked in place. Um, and then there are, there's a, a magnitude 10 earthquake that propagates seismic waves around the world. These would knock down some big dinosaurs. And if you're a giant dinosaur like Dreadnoughtus, you don't get to fall down. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna die if you fall, if you weigh that much. Um, and then tsunami waves are crashing across the, the world's coastline. Some of these might have been a mile high. There's hurricane forced winds that, that emanate out from the impact site that, knock down trees and um, send sediment down rivers and into the sea. And then uh, if you were to survive that searing blast of heat, all that dust and gas in the atmosphere, it shrouds out the sun. And so we go essentially from pizza oven into a refrigerator, and now it's an empty refrigerator. There's not much to eat. And those... Uh, those ice house type conditions might have lasted for thousands of years. And in the ocean, you're probably okay that day when the asteroid hits unless you were you, unless you were where the asteroid actually hit. But then all that um, debris that is shrouded out the sun causes the food t- chain to break down. And uh, phytoplankton can no longer do their thing. And once the phytoplankton uh, stop making energy, then pretty soon the zooplankton has nothing to eat, then the little fish and the bigger fish and the bigger fish, and pretty soon the big mosasaurs and plesiosaurs have nothing to eat. So within a matter of weeks, uh, you would see the food chain in the ocean starting to break down. So you have these two parallel mass extinctions, one on land and then one in the ocean, And then many, many years after that of just a really rough time on Earth where species are getting picked off, you know, one at a time uh, during this time period. And the result is that we lose all of the dinosaurs except for some birds and 75% of species on the planet. And our ancestors were little shrew-like creatures during the entire reign of the dinosaurs trying to stay out of the way of dinosaurs for almost 165 million years living in the forgotten recesses of the dinosaur world. And all of a sudden, you know, the sky clears up and they're able to crawl out from their hidey holes and the meek have inherited the earth. And all of these niches that were occupied by dinosaurs before are now vacant. It's like opening up the, the you know, the newspaper and seeing all these job ads. And now these species, they begin to evolve into, into, Herding herbivores that are now able to operate during the day and they go some of them go into the ocean and whales happen Some of them turn into primates some of them turn into bears and you know camels and everything that we see today And none of that happens if that asteroid doesn't hit 66 million years ago and clear the playing field and so we are the recipients of this Amazingly fortunate day for us this amazing turn in history when the dinosaur's great reign was wiped out by literally a cosmic accident.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating way uh, to look look at sort of the evolution of our species that, you know, we we happen to... Po- I mean, of course, there's lots of happenstance that occurred throughout our evolutionary history. But this notion that there's this one event that that provided the opportunity for our ancestors to grow, to me, is really fascinating. And it begs the question of, you know, why didn't dinosaurs then regenerate? Is it just the serendipitous nature of natural selection? Or, you know, is there some other, were there some conditions post asteroid that really um, favored the development of other species at the expense of dinosaurs coming back?
1: Well, evolution is a one way street. And if you if you take the movie of, of Earth history, and you rewind it and you play it again and you do that over and over and over, it will never turn out the same way twice. The, the reality that we experience today on Earth is the product of literally trillions and trillions of, of contingencies. All of these events had to happen at the right moment in the right place, uh, in the right order, or the world that we know today doesn't happen. You know, another world would exist in its place, and that would be amazing, no doubt, and also equally improbable. Um, But you can go back in our history, the history of our species, and it's not just that impact at the end of the time of the dinosaurs, but so many other things that you can go back to, um, you know, before there were the first dinosaurs, when the common ancestor of all mammals and all dinosaurs split, They were these tiny little lizard-like creatures. They're they're just after uh, amniotes evolved, things that can lay eggs up on land, hard eggs. And, you know, if you look at these little creatures, they wouldn't have looked very impressive. They were small. And then they split into these two groups. There would have been two very, very hard to distinguish species at one point. If one of those species goes extinct, there would never be dinosaurs. There'd never be mosasaurs or crocodiles or pterosaurs or any of those reptiles. If the other tiny little hard to distinguish uh, species goes extinct, there's never mammals. You'd never have whales. You'd never have, you know, bats or, you know, mole rats or human beings. And you know, and then you can run the movie backwards even further. You can go back to the Cambrian period, um, and in the Cambrian we see all of the the phyla, like the major types of animals, starting to appear. And we see the first macro predators, things that are about a meter long. This one called Anomalocaris is, is orders of magnitude bigger and tougher than everything else around. And then our ancestors, the ancestors of all of all backbone animals, appear then too. And they look like these tiny little wormy creatures. They're about a centimeter and a half long. So, you know, about as long as one of your knuckles. Um, But they have bilateral symmetry, a one-way digestive tract. Their sensory organs are concentrated up front. Uh, They have V-shaped muscle patterns. I mean, that sounds like everyone you know, doesn't it? And if this tiny little thing called picaea, if that goes extinct or its kin go extinct, then none of the vertebrates ever exist. And if you were to go back during that time and look at that ecosystem, you would never put your money on that tiny little wormy thing. You would never look at little pikea and say, that's the one, that's gonna be the winner. That is the thing you know, that's gonna evolve into creatures that visit other planets and fight battles in the sky and harness the atom. And that's the creature from which this planet's Einstein will emerge. You would never, ever do that because it's just also contingent.
0: You know, one, one great sort of visual example in my uh, view of sort of evolution kind of being uh, a tinkerer rather than a designer uh, are the little puny arms of the T-Rex. But um, I've learned in your book that maybe that's not the right view. I, I thought of them as just kind of vestigial little things. Uh, but maybe they serve a bigger purpose. So tell us about them.
1: Sure. Um, So, you know, people often deride those uh, little tiny Lilliputian arms of the T Rex. And there's all these internet memes out there about, you know, T Rex can't put its hat on or wipe its bum or if you're happy and you know it all, never mind. And, you know, things like that. Well, you know, it turns out that those tiny arms are probably related to the evolution of the power and the ferocity of T Rex in that. T-Rex has the strongest bite force known to have ever existed in any land animal. And if you're going to have a really powerful bite, you need really big jaw muscles. And that means you need a really big head. And if you're going to have a really big head, you need really big neck muscles to support that head. And it turns out that neck muscles and arm muscles compete with each other for muscle attachment space. Across the bones of the shoulder. And this is actually the idea of uh, Michael Habib, who's a paleontologist at at UCLA. And he points out that as the arms of tyrannosaurs um, became smaller and smaller because they weren't really conferring much of an advantage to those animals, it creates an opportunity then for the neck muscles to get bigger, which creates the opportunity for that bite force to get more and more powerful. So those puny little arms really kind of paved the way for the most terrifying you know, predator to ever exist uh, on on land.
0: And you also um, talk about how there's like a, a, a big error in the movie Jurassic Park uh, in terms of what you should do if you encounter a dinosaur, and it's not okay to stand still. So give us some advice. Why is that not going to be an a, a appropriate thing to do if you want to not get noticed, and what should we do instead?
1: Yeah, so we we can see in the anatomy of T. Rex that it had um, it had very good smell, and so the idea that um, well, it had very good smell, and it had very very good vision, better vision than than we do. So um, T. Rex is going to notice you if you're standing still, even if you're camouflaged. It's going to be able to smell you. It has smell that's you know, smelling senses that are way better th- than ours. Um, and it was fast, too. T-Rex, There are some studies, there's disagreement uh, among paleontologists about this, but there are some studies that suggest that T-Rex could outpace even the fastest Olympic sprinter today. So it's fast, it has a great sniffer, it has really good eyes, really good color vision as well, really good binocular vision, so it could really, you know, reckon the distance of things really well. So, uh, you know, it's it's one weakness that might be your best strategy um, to stay alive, it's not a great one, mind you, but it might be your best, is that you know T-Rex is about as long as a bus. It's about 45 feet long. Well, imagine putting a telephone pole across your shoulders and trying to pivot, right? It would be a very slow, laborious task because of the conservation of angular momentum. So T-Rex is gonna be fast, but it's gonna have a tough time pivoting uh, fast. Humans, on the other hand, can spin their bodies in a fraction of a second. So your best chance to to evade a T-Rex is to do a U-turn and double back um, <laughs> and hope <laughs> that uh, that it doesn't kill you in the process. Um, but that's what I would do where I strand on the uh, Isla Nublar with a T-Rex bearing down on me.
0: So I ask that for entirely practical reasons, which is that we now potentially are coming into an era where we might have the capability to bring back a T-Rex or some dinosaurs uh, from extinction, you know, using, uh, extracting their DNA from, as you said, the sort of remnants of tissue and bone that we can have. How do you, th- what do you think about the sort of de-extinction uh, idea?
1: Well, I think we're a long way from um, genetically Engineering uh, a dinosaur. We we have proteins from dinosaurs. We have uh, blood uh, preserved, uh, but we don't have DNA. DNA is a is a water soluble molecule, and the oldest DNA recovered so far is about uh, seven hundred thousand years old. Which is you know, in paleontological terms, seven hundred thousand years is basically now. <laughs> um, So I don't know if we will ever recover DNA from uh, Mesozoic dinosaurs. I would never say never. I've been wrong before by doing that. Um, But we do have DNA now from creatures that went extinct in the near term, such as mammoths. The mammoth genome was sequenced before the elephant genome was sequenced. And other creatures like passenger pigeons, the marsupial wolf, um, scientists will be able to obtain genetic sequences from these animals. And the development of CRISPR technology, which harnesses the the mechanisms of certain bacteria um, and puts them to work as a a gene editing tool, a gene splicing tool, has made this much, much easier. And there are people that are working very hard right now to to resurrect, to de-extinct mammoths. And I think they're going to be successful in time. And, you know, I think there's a case to be made for doing that with animals that we as a species sent into extinction. It's pretty clear that humans resulted in the extinction of the mammoth and, you know, certainly things within historical times. Um, And so I think there's a, there's a moral case that could be made. There's also an ecological case. Uh, It seems that, you know, the, the high latitude ecosystems in the Northern hemisphere were destabilized uh, when the mammoths went extinct. And um, having the mammoths there to process coarse plant material um, could help northern forests grow and become sinks of carbon dioxide then.
0: Yeah, we had Beth Shapiro on the show uh, a year ago and then Hope Jaron as well. Um, so our listeners you know, should be familiar with some of those ideas. Uh, but I guess you're not going to be spending 10 minutes a day practicing your U-turn anytime soon.
1: I'm not. Um, you know, there are also people that are tweaking the genes of chickens and getting them to express their non-avian dinosaur um, characteristics. So the way evolution works generally is when a a creature evolves from one thing into another, the genes that are no longer used, there's no mechanism really to cut those out of the genome. They're just deactivated. So they're still there. And so, you know, within our genome, we have we have genes from our fish ancestors and our amphibian ancestors and et cetera. And so chickens have genes within their genome um, from their non-avian dinosaurian ancestors. And so there are people that are tweaking the chicken genome and getting them to express their long tails and their teeth and their claws and their scales. Uh, as far as I know, nobody has let any of these hatch yet, But I suspect uh, in the fullness of time, somebody will and we will have it won't be quite, you know, you're not going to have another T-Rex, but you could have a chicken that now um, displays some of those features.
0: And is there one thing that we can take from what we've learned about dinosaurs yet that might help us uh, adapt to the current threat of change in our environment at the moment? I mean, I know obviously, an asteroid impact was very fast, and we have a little bit more time. Uh, but is there anything that we can, any lesson that we can take from what happened to the dinosaurs that may might help us survive over the next 100 years?
1: Well, I think so. Um, you know, if you look at that great reign of the dinosaurs, 165 million years, and their incredible success, it's stunning to imagine that that one day came to an end, that it came to an end very, very suddenly. And you know, if you were back in the Cretaceous period, you might imagine that that would never, ever happen. You might imagine that dinosaurs that had been around for so long at that point would just persist forever. And the the, the lesson that we get from Earth history is that nothing lasts forever and no rain persists across all of time. And no matter what success a species or a group of species um, is enjoying, um, our lives here on this earth are, they're, you know, contingent on so much going right and so much else uh, not going wrong. And so we see that species, you know, have really these fleeting existences in the geological record. And our species has only been around for about 300,000 years. It's just a little flicker of time geologically. And, you know, we arrive here, if you were to shrink all of earth history down into a single calendar year, our species arrives on the last night of the year at 11.59, 59 p.m. You know, the ball's dropping, people are kissing, corks are popping. And that's when we show up and we look around and we think it's all about us. Um, but I think a lesson of dinosaurs and the lesson of the past is that, you know, our existence here is precarious. And um, there's no guarantee that it's going to last forever. So we have to be active participants in sculpting our future we have to take care of this planet that is our only home this little lifeboat that we live on in space it's it's small when you look at the the biosphere it's easy to damage and right now we are doing things to the earth that are both um, profound and dramatic but at the same time unintentional and you know we need to get to the point where where we stop doing this unintentional damage to the only home that we have and start to take care of this place because nothing lasts forever. And there's nothing that guarantees that humans will persist into deep time if we don't do that.
0: Well, I want to take this moment to remind our listeners that Kenneth's book, Why Dinosaurs Matter, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Kenneth Lacovara, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for another episode. I want to remind you that we'll be talking about dinosaurs again next week, just after Thanksgiving, with our interview with Steve Broussat. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Kyle Rihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host for today, Indre Viscontis. Kishore and I will both be back next week. Have a great Thanksgiving.